draw your attention this morning to the book of Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah chapter 6, and I want to read verses 1 through 11. Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. Nehemiah chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies found out that I had finished rebuilding the wall and that no gaps remain, though we had not yet set up the doors in the gate. So Sanballat and Geshem sent a message asking me to meet them at one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But I realized they were plotting to harm me, so I replied by sending this message to them. I am engaged in a great work, so I can't come. Why should I stop working to come and meet with you? Four times they sent the message, the same message, and each time I gave the same reply. The fifth time, Sanballat's servant came with an open letter in his hand, and this is what it said. There is a rumor among the surrounding nations, and Geshem tells me it is true, that you and the Jews are planning to rebel, and that is why you are building the wall. According to his reports, you plan to be their king. He also reports that you have appointed prophets in Jer Jerusalem to proclaim about you. Look, there is a king already in Judah. You can be very sure that this report will get back to the king, so I suggest that you come and talk it over with me. I replied, there is no truth in any part of your story. You are making up the whole thing. They intimidate us, imagining that they could discourage us and stop the work. So I continued the work with even greater determination. Later, I went to visit Shemaiah, son of Delii, and grandson of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home. He said, let us meet together inside the temple of God and bolt the doors shut. Your enemies are coming to kill you tonight. But I replied, should somebody in my position run from danger? Should someone in my position enter the temple to save his life? No, I won't do it. Thus be the word of God. Amen. You may be seated. David had been the character to introduce us to at least the initial magnitude of what it meant to be a warrior in the kingdom of God. David alerted us that it would take a strong fighting mentality to understand the importance of standing as a warrior when you are engaged in spiritual warfare. Joshua helps us to understand that it's critical that although you may have a following of a strong mentality, a fighting mentality, 
you will further need to employ a stern focus to make sure that you are not sidetracked by the detractions and distractions that are along the way. This morning, Nehemiah, who is neither a prophet nor a preacher, but just a simple civil servant, is going to introduce us to the imperativeness of having a finishing spirit, a spirit that is des desired and determined to see the mission come to pass. We run quickly to the early 20th century in that historical period that is known to us as the Harlem Renaissance. Harlem became the cultural mega of African-American literature, art, music, and stage performance, resulting from that great migration from the South to the North in the early 1900s that birthed a community in a geography that was initially not intended to house the presence of people of African descent. Harlem began as a Northern Manhattan community meant to cater only to the upper white middle class. However, the developers overdeveloped, which led to empty buildings, and the landlords, who were now desperate to find someone to occupy these properties that they may gain revenue, allowed in the morning of the 1900s a few middle class black families who came from a neighborhood known as Black Bohemia and moved to Harlem. There were already white families there, but those white families were resisting to the now present black families and fought until they could fight no more. They gave up and eventually fled to the suburbs. A population boom between 1910 and 1920 gave us the great historical giants that we now recognize as descendants from the Harlem, from the Harlem Renaissance. We're grateful for the likes of Langston Hughes and Zora Neil Hurston and Louis Armstrong and James Weldon Johnson, Gwendolyn Brooks and Conti Cullen. What you may not know is that although the initial intention of Harlem was not to have black presence, when black presence came to Harlem, there were those who were white who wanted to still know what, it, what was it about the blacks who found themselves self-empowered in Harlem. But not wanting to connect with blacks, they created what we later come to know as the Cotton Club. And in creating the Cotton Club, they invited the black artists like Louis Armstrong and Cab Calloway that they might come in and be entertained by the gifts of black artists. And yet they could not stop the growth and the power that was taking place in Harlem. One such personality that provides for me this poetic sermon that composed of the totality of what I'm trying to say this morning, his name was Festus Claudius McKay, better known as Claude McKay a Jamaican writer and poet who comes out of the Harlem Renaissance. He wrote a number of great poems, After the Winter, The Harlem Shallow, Joy in the Woods, and The Lynching. But none 
touched my heart more than the poem that he, write, he wrote entitled, If We Must Die. And in writing that, he sort of encompassed the definition of this characteristic about finishing the task no matter the cost, employing the understanding of perseverance, endurance, boldness, and confidence. Finishing the task that lies ahead with dignity and with pride. What gave birth to this poem was the riots of 1919 in Chicago. You might remember the history of that. A young man by the name of Eugene Williams was swimming in the lake and he crossed what was then described as an imaginary line that separated blacks from whites in the lake. In crossing that line, he was stoned, they say, by some whites who injured his head to the point where he went unconscious and drowned in the lake. There were other stories that said that upon the stoning, he tried to make his way back to the shore only to discover that there were whites there waiting to stone him and in return, he ended up going back into the lake only to suffer unconsciousness and eventually dying in the lake. That created the worst riots in Chicago's history. On that day, there were some 28 different persons who died. Eventually, 500 persons died as a result of the riots that stemmed from the death of Eugene Williams. What it sparked was an interesting counteraction. Whites would find blacks and assault and beat them to death, and blacks would find whites and assault and beat them to death. And not until someone realized that the constant beating of death is not going to get us anywhere was the finality of helping them stop the violence and eventually the riots ceased. That gave birth to Claude McKay to write what he called after witnessing as well as hearing and reading accounts about the riots, if we must die. Here's what he says. If we must die, let it not be like hogs. You won't understand the analogy unless you grew up witnessing the killing of hogs. You will know it's a gruesome task. Let us not die like hogs, hunted and pinned in an inglorious spot. While round us bark the mad and hungry dogs, making their mock at our accursed lot. If we must die, oh, let us nobly die so that our precious blood may not be shed in vain. Then even the monsters we defy shall be constrained to honor us though dead. Oh, kinsmen, we must meet the common foe. Though far outnumbered, let us show up brave and for their thousand blows deal one death blow when though before us lies the open grave like men will face the murderous cowardly pack pressed to the wall dying but fighting back
The essence of the poem is really housed in the last line. Press to the wall, dying, but fighting back. For Claude McKay highlights the necessity of possessing a fighting mentality, although pressed to the wall, a stern focus, dying, but still fighting back, and a now finishing spirit regardless of the circumstance that we may be presently encountering. You must remember that the devil is always after your confidence. For the enemy knows that if he can't keep you from your calling, that will only take place if he can strip you of your confidence. That's because when something is valuable, it automatically becomes vulnerable. That's the reason why when we have something that's overwhelmingly valuable, we put it into a place where it can be safely protected and guarded because it has now become such a vulnerable something that we'll even give our life to guard it. So your warrior mentality is strengthened by operating within a stern focus, says Joshua, and yet your focus is strengthened and sustained because of your God confidence to endure, to fight, to finish, even if you are dying or pressed to the wall. I could not help but recognize the reality of that statement by taking a look at the life of Fannie Lou Hamer. And when I looked at Fannie Lou Hamer's life, who was thrown into prison and whom the jail sheriff told two black men and provided clubs to do so, you either beat her to death or I will beat you to death. And those two men had a choice. They had a choice to wrestle with, do I preserve my life or do I allow my life to be taken that her life would be preserved? They chose, of course, to beat Fannie Lou Hamer. In fact, Fannie Lou Hamer later said that they beat her so bad until there came a period when she couldn't even feel the beating any longer because her whole body had become numb to the assault that she was experiencing. But she later told in an interview, but deep down in my soul, I couldn't allow that beating to beat the life out of me. So I fought back in my spirit even though they couldn't see me fighting back. Good God from Zion. Listen to what she said. On the inside of you, you don't necessarily have to swing your hands to show that you're fighting back. But something within me that holdeth the rain, something within me I cannot explain. All I know that there is something within me. Talk about me as you please. Throw rocks at me as you please. Humiliate me as you please. Stomp all over me as you please. Do whatever you think you need to do. But there is something on the inside of me, a determination that is determined not to let you get the last laugh or the last victory in this fight. And I saw in this context 
how Fannie Lou Hamer says that you cannot let the devil steal your confidence even when the devil is standing before you trying to beat the hell out of you. You've got to stand your ground and be determined Though he slay me, yet I'm going to trust him. I'm going to push my way through. I'm going to make sure that I stay connected to the God of my salvation. I will not allow someone believing that they can get the best out of me when the God that I serve has the best already reserved on the inside of me. And I understood then what it meant that even when I'm pressed against the wall and I might even be dying, I'm fighting back. And I, I just came by to tell somebody this afternoon, I don't care how bad you fight against the wall and I don't care how much you think you dying in the process, you better put your boxing gloves on, you better put your boxing gear on, you better put your boxing mind on, you better put your fighting mind on, you better get back into the race and be determined, I am not going to die and if I do die, I'm going to die fighting. 50 Cent had it right. Get rich, but die trying if you don't get rich. You got to fight your way through no matter what the current circumstance is that you might be encountering. Finishing the fight that is yet set there before you. Your mentality is critical because it doesn't matter how you start the race, but how we finish is the most critical and important thing. The finishing spirit is what I find in the life of Nehemiah and the work of this civil servant who is persevering in spite of the presence of his enemy. A layman, a civil worker, with a burden in his heart to address an issue that appears no one else is addressing in, in, in relation to his fellow kindred he yet assembles a competent and committed team, tells them about the vision, manages the task, and see it come to pass. Before we get to verse 15 of chapter 6, and we read those grand words, the wall was finished, we often like to rejoice and be happy in the end product, and there's nothing wrong with that, but you might want to check and see what happened before we got to the end product. Before the wall was finished, Nehemiah came to a crossroad. He came to a moment in his history where he was tempted to abandon the project altogether. He encountered a temptation that led to his response in verse 11. When Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem came to Nehemiah, look closely at verse 4, it says that they came four times with the same message. And the message was, give up on building the wall. Abandon the project. Forget about it. The economy is bad. Politics is bad. Nobody's really going to help you. There is nothing in your favor. You might as well abandon the project because it's really not necessary. In fact, why would you give up your status as the king's cupbearer to come and help these poor Hebrews who are returning from Babylonian exile? Why would you take yourself out of your comfort zone and help them try to find some place where they could begin to experience life more abundantly? Nehemiah heard it all. 
four times they came to him and they came with the same story. But verse 4 says in the B clause, four times Nehemiah gave them the same response. He says, why would I come down and have a conversation with you because the work that I'm doing is too great. Why am I going to abandon all of the hard work that I've done to get to where I am and just because it's obvious that for some reason a spirit of hateration has arisen on the inside of your own soul that you can't stand to see us progress or grow. Instead, you want to find a way to sabotage what we are attempting to do. You got to be able to recognize, as Nehemiah did, who his opposition was. Look at verse 1. In Clause A, it tells you very clearly that Nehemiah knew that Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, and it says in all of his other enemies, he knew exactly who they were and even why they came to try to challenge him. If you go all the way back to chapter 2 in verse 19 and 20, it'll make clear that when Nehemiah began the project, they came then and began to taunt Nehemiah and tell him that he must be crazy to think that he, along with the other Jews, can rebuild the wall in one day. In fact, it was one other who said, if a fox had gotten up on top of the wall, it would fall down, suggesting that's how weak their own craftsmanship is. But Nehemiah didn't stop. Nehemiah didn't allow their discouragement to discourage him. He didn't allow their negative words to cause him to give up on the project. He didn't allow their suggestion that he couldn't complete it to cause him to abandon it. The Bible says in verse 20 of chapter 2 of Nehemiah, he just took his issue to the Lord, believing by faith that God was going to help them succeed. Whenever you are engaged in progress and you are engaged in growth, the characteristic that the enemy will try to test is your characteristic of finishing a task. A good warrior knows that if I'm in the fight, I'm in the fight to finish it. And even if it looks like I'm not going to win, I will never tell myself I'm not winning. But I will always tell myself, this just nothing more than a hiccup on the journey. And what I've got to do is fight through the toughest time. Can you imagine how Moses felt that every time he went to Pharaoh and told Pharaoh that God said, let my people go, that Pharaoh would look back at him and laugh and not only give him the cold shoulder, but make it clear unto him that I am not going to let your people go. In fact, who is your God to tell me what I need to do as the king of Egypt? And nine times Moses had to go back to Pharaoh and tell him repeatedly the same thing. Can you imagine the challenge to his faith? and the challenge to his endurance and the challenge to his confidence and the challenge to his hope and the challenge to his stability and the challenge to believe that God was going to really come through when he said he was. 
was. And God told him every single time, let me give you a little bit of a heads up. Every time you go back to Pharaoh, I'm going to harden his heart. Now, if I'm Moses, I'm going to look back in God. I'm thinking and saying, why are you going to harden his heart? I want to get up out this joint as quick as possible. But God is saying, no, I need to show you that although you might encounter a doubt in your heart, I need to let you know I said I'd be with you and I'd never forsake you. I said I'd bring you through and I'd bring you older. I said I'd make a way out of no way for you. I said I'd be your bridge over troubled water. I said you'd be victorious. You'd be the head and not the tail. You'd be up and not down. And in order for me to do that, I got to harden Pharaoh's heart and make you come back every time. And I'm wondering in the process that as God keeps making you go back and forth to prayer, you might be hollering out, Lord, when you going to make this change? I'm just here to tell you, don't worry about it. Just keep on going back. Because at some point in time, God is going to bring about the open door. And you know the story. When that 10th plague came about, God said, you tell Pharaoh this time. And then he said, let me help you understand, Moses, you're not going to have to go back no more. This is going to be it because when I strike the firstborn of everything, of every child in the house, every animal in the field, no matter what it is, the firstborn will die and you watch Pharaoh will let you go. When Pharaoh lost his firstborn, Pharaoh sent his messenger unto Moses and told Moses, get your things, pack up, get up out of here as quick as possible. I no longer want death in my household. I'm just trying to tell you, Nehemiah says, don't even waste your time trying to answer your enemy when they send you hater emails. All you got to do is just look unto the hills from whence come your help and just cry out, Father, I stretch my hands unto thee. There's no other help at this time that I know because all I know is you've never left me nor forsaken me and you're the only one that I have to cry out on right now. David comes to remind us that God has to take you through those experiences and place them in your memory bank so that when you hit that moment in which doubt seems like it may be gaining victory, you just need only to hit the rewind button and that will enable you to see how God delivered you not one time before, not two times before, not three times before, not four times before, but numbers you can't even count that he's brought you through on many different situations. And here it is, Nehemiah says that he went back to God and told God to handle his light work because he knew that if he engaged with his enemy, he would not win the battle. In fact, he would lose his focus. He would lose his fighting mentality. And he would probably abandon his spirit to fight and finish the race. But what did he do? He put it in the hands of the Lord. I'm just trying to tell you, no matter what the enemy is throwing at you, don't spend your time trying to respond to folk who ain't going to help you in the process. Simply give it to the Lord and leave it there. But here it is. Here it is. Before we got to verse 15, 
we got to handle verse 11. Because verse 11 suggests that after Nehemiah assembles his team and the wall is finished, yet Nehemiah stands at a crossroad. He stands at a crossroad and faced with the temptation, do he listen to the suggestions by his enemy or do he stay true to the calling that is on his life? What you cannot do is allow the enemy to transition you from worship to worry. What he doesn't want, if you go back and read Nehemiah chapter 4, what the enemy doesn't want is for you to continue to believe that the more you worship and celebrate God, the more power you gain to persevere and finish the task. When you read Nehemiah 4, the Bible says that Sanballat and Tobiah again, after in chapter 2 trying to make him abandon the project, got word that Nehemiah and the rest of the Hebrews were continuing to build the wall. The Bible says they became furious and angry because they wouldn't stop what they were being tempted to stop. And the Bible says what happened was Nehemiah celebrated and worshipped, watch this, if you read verse 7, when God had let him witness that although the wall at that time was only half finished, the Bible says they continued to work at the wall with great enthusiasm. Here's what you got to do. When you identify your opposition, intensify your objective. Make sure you celebrate and worship God at every small step of progress. I don't care how small the step is. I don't care how tiny you think it is. You look at progress and you just simply say, I'm going to bless the Lord at all times. Every time you see the smallest amount of progress, Lord, I thank you. Yesterday I was an inch. Today I am an inch and a half. That's fine. As long as I'm moving and I'm going forward, I bless your name, God. You got to learn to celebrate the little that you have and the little progress that you're making because one day that's going to turn into more progress which turns into more progress and turns into more progress and before you know it, you were once a one, now you were five. Mind you, your haters are still on the sidelines taunting you at the same time but you, you allow yourself to just shout your way right on through all of the hateration that you're going to experience because it will be there and Nehemiah says that when they came and told him you need to abandon the work Nehemiah said when I saw that the wall was only half finished I blessed God like the wall had been finished for the last five years because you've got to celebrate God knowing that when you do so, God's going to help you finish the task real strongly. So you get back to chapter 6, and chapter 6 makes it clear that they aren't giving up on trying to test Nehemiah, on trying to tempt him, but what Nehemiah did was intensified the objective. And what you want to do is not allow the enemy to move you from worship to worrying. 
but you take your worry and bring it to worship. When you do that, you turn it over to the Lord and you simply leave it there. And in leaving it there, the enemy is so afraid that if you get to the space of worship, that your strength will be restored and your mind will be renewed and your hope would be restored and your drive would be reapplied and your enthusiasm would come back to life and your joy would show back up and your determination will help you get through. He doesn't want you to worship. That's the reason why when you come to worship, it's the one time you need to release every burden that you have, every tear that you encounter, every trouble that you're walking through, every heartache that you have, release that to the Lord and say, God, replace it with your joy. Replace it with your power. Replace it with your strength. Replace it with your peace. Replace it with your enthusiasm. Replace it with your power. Replace it with your endurance. Replace it with your energy. And the devil knows if you ever get all that back, no matter what the challenge is, you will find a way to get through the challenge. Don't quit on the journey. Don't give up in the fight. Don't throw in the towel. Don't let the enemy get you on the side road. You stand your ground. You square your shoulder. You look unto the hills from whence comes your help. Do I have any witness when you look unto the Lord? He will bring you out. He's a burden bearer. He's a load bearer. He's a friend. He's some power. He'll be your joy. He'll be your peace. Hold on and finish to the end. Nehemiah has a word for us. He not only intensified his objective, but Nehemiah kicked his game up to another level. Yeah, when the enemy shows up, you never stoop to the enemy's level. You don't stand around and argue with him. You don't stand around and try to do tit for tat. You don't have to really say a whole lot. All you got to do is just say, okay, I, I, I know where this is going. And you raise your game to another level. When you walk away, they think you're walking away as a coward because you didn't confront them. That's clearly they're not understanding what spiritual maturity is. That I don't really have to fight you every time. Sometimes I might have to, but in this occasion, I don't even have to waste my time trying to fight you. I'm just gonna turn you over to the Lord who promised that he would make my enemy my footstool. See, if you read the story of Joseph, you will notice that Joseph never retaliated even after his brothers took him, threw him in a hole, really wanted to see him die. If it hadn't been for Reuben, he probably would have died. Even when they sold him into slavery, he never said a mumbling word back to them. 
If you read the story of Jesus on his way to the cross, he never retaliates to those who are trying to take him to the cross. He just simply stays focused with a fighting mentality because he knows he's got to finish the task that is standing before him and that is to go to Golgotha to die for you and I. He just keeps his eyes and says, Father, nevertheless, it is not my will but that thine will be done. Nehemiah says, take your game up to another level. And Nehemiah did that by not only celebrating every sense of progress that God had given him, but Nehemiah took his game up realizing that no matter what happens, he must always transition from problems to praise. He mustn't allow the problem to occupy the space in which God has placed praise that would constantly come out of his mouth. See, it's easy to exhort a problem, but when you do that, you're telling God how big the problem is and you're suggesting to the problem how smart is. Push that thing and decide, instead of shouting about a problem or complaining with a problem, I'm gonna allow myself to shout with a praise. Then you tell the problem how big God is, and then you tell God how small the problem really is. And in the larger scheme of things, Nehemiah looked at the suggestion of his enemy, verse 2, who told him to come down and meet us in one of the villages in Onah. And Nehemiah says, you done lost your mind. Smoked too much of whatever you've been smoking. Drunk too much of whatever you've been drinking. There's no need for me to come down from where I am because the work that I am doing is too great for me to give it up to listen to what you got to say. Notice what happens when you intensify your objective, the enemy intensifies its attack. Look at the story. It says that when Nehemiah wouldn't respond the way that they wanted him to respond, they sent him a message that encompassed a letter that had absolutely no truth to it at all. We heard that you wanted to be the king yourself. In fact, you've appointed prophets who will preach about you. We heard likewise that you are rebuilding the wall so you can build a kingdom for yourself. And to make matters worse, Nehemiah didn't even respond to that. In fact, Nehemiah really said when he finally did give a response, all that you were saying is a bunch of hogwash. It's a made-up story. You ain't heard nothing you ain't seen nothing, you don't know nothing, you won't know anything, I can't teach you nothing, and the best thing you can do is realize nothing from nothing leaves nothing. So I'm going to move on to where God has appointed me. Read the story. If that didn't work, they hired a prophet. Check the text out. Who is homebound. That's a mighty interesting prophet who can't come where the problem is, but he's homebound, tied to where his home must be sick, some sort of issue going on. It's almost like Elijah at Mount Carmel. If your God really did hear you, he must not because he's on vacation somewhere because you've been praying and ain't nothing happened yet. They hired a prophet who told Nehemiah, come see me that we might go to church and lock ourselves in the church house 
because somebody is on their way to kill you tonight. Nehemiah, verse 11, looks back and says, why in the world the man that I am would have turned around and run from somebody like you? Why would I run from the problem that you have set before me? I am a warrior in the kingdom of God. And warriors don't run from problems. Warriors are solution finders. Warriors confront their confrontations. Warriors don't run. They stand their ground. Nehemiah says, a man such as I, why should I leave and turn around and run because you've made a few threats. When you elevate your game to the next level, don't worry about the elevation of the threats. They're going to get more intensified. But don't you know that the deeper the problem, the deeper the God that you have that will serve with you in the depth of that problem? Listen to the psalmist. If I descend to the lower parts, he's there. If I ascend up into the heavens, he's there. If I go out into the sea, He's there. No matter where you go, you can't go so deep that God can't find you. You can't get so high that God can't bring you back down. And you can't get so wide that God can't reach you. Trying to tell us that the fighting, finishing spirit enables us to do so. Because as Nehemiah said, we don't run and we don't throw in the towel. You don't quit. I know you want to quit. Watch this. And when you want to quit, notice when your spirit of quitting comes, you are right there at the finishing line. You are almost there. In fact, you can see the finish line in sight. And how many people have you witnessed in your journey who were right there? All they needed was a little bit more patience and a little bit more endurance and a little bit more perseverance and they would have made their way to the end of the journey. They would have finished and finished strong. Here's my analogy that I'm done. My daughter and I like to watch this show called uh, My 600 Pound Life. And we watched this past week this one young lady who hadn't been out of her room for three years because her weight had surpassed the point of 600 pounds, and she couldn't move. Uh, she had lymphedemia, which caused her, her legs to be extremely large, and so she had no, no, no mobility. So she contacted this doctor who could bring about a change, but the doctor had one requirement. In order for me to help you, you're going to have to come walking into my office. Now watch this. So she entered into the program, and the first thing she had to do was encounter this liquid diet, which instantaneously over a couple of weeks reduced her to about 50, 60, 70 pounds, something like that. And then she had to work at getting up because she's been so immobile to a point where he needed her to be able to be mobile to come to his office. So watch this. All she had to do was to get herself together where she could move out of her bedroom into the living room and outside to the sidewalk and down the sidewalk to the car that awaited her. She got out of the bed, she left the bedroom, moved to the living room, 
came outside the first time in three years and made her way and got halfway down the sidewalk and had to take a rest. Cooling the gang, no problem. Sat down, took a rest, and then decided it hurt too bad. The pain was too extensive. I'm going back into the house and we'll try this tomorrow. Watch this. Not understanding that she had already, already gotten half of the victory won. She was halfway down the sidewalk, not realizing why not keep forward because it's going to require the same energy to turn around and go back to the house and sit down and start all over again. Had she pushed her way on down to the car, she would have been tired, but she would have arrived at her destination. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. I realize you've pushed your way for a long time. You fought through the heartache. You fought through the disappointment. You fought through the pain. You fought through the frustration. And you can see the finish line right before you. But you're so tired and you're so frustrated that you got to sit down and take a break. Ain't nothing wrong with sitting down and taking a break. For they that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. And I'm here to tell you, sometimes you got to stop and take a break. That God can restore your soul. That you can get your mind back right. And you can get your focus back right. And you can get your energy back right. And you can get your determination. Ain't nothing wrong with taking a break to get yourself rejuvenated. But whatever you do, don't turn around and go back where you came from. Because the same energy you can expend going backwards needs to be the same energy you're going to expend to get to the finish line. Long story short, on her second go-round, she made it to the car. But here's my point. She could have got there earlier if she had just pressed her way through. Leaving those things that are behind, forgetting about those things that are behind her, and pressing, pressing, pressing to finish, pressing to rejoice, pressing to shout, pressing to witness, pressing to celebrate, press her way to her destiny, she'd have got there every single time. Don't throw in the towel, don't give up, but take the posture of Nehemiah. The person that I am, should I run away from this a problem because I'm at a crossroads in my life? Because you're at a crossroad, that's a chance for you to prove God and see if God really is a way maker. See if God really is a burden bearer. See if God really is a load lifter. 
See if God really does open doors. If God really will take you on the wings of his eagle. This is a time for you not to be sad, but to rejoice. Because the God that you serve will help you finish. So what? It took you 10 years to finish that degree. You finished. So what? It took us seven years to have our first child. You finished. So what? It took 10 years for God to heal or to save my loved one. It did happen. In the meantime, you celebrate every small step of progress. And you stop sitting down on God because the progress didn't take the leap that you wanted it to take. Do you not know that God, some, for some reason, always takes us through these moments where you got to trust him? Have you seen that? You, you got to trust him. Because as long as you and I have resources, connections, as long as we can make it happen, then it's not really God, it's us. But for God to prove himself that he's God in your life, it takes a moment when you have to totally trust God. Your hands are tied. Ain't nothing you can do. And then you just got to sit there and say, Lord, I've done all that I can do. And God says, that's, that's just what I've been waiting on for you to finally realize ain't nothing more Look at Nehemiah. Nehemiah never argues with his enemy. He just lets them know, I ain't quitting what I've been blessed to do. I'm going to keep pushing and I'm going to finish this thing. And notice what the text tells us. If you read verse 16, uh, 15 and 16 of chapter 6, it says that they completed the wall in 52 days. Wait a minute. The size of this wall is impossible to complete in 52 days. Not when you're serving a God who specializes in miraculous stuff. Can I call the roll? They showed up at a wedding feast and the wine had totally ran out. It take too much time to go back to the winery and try to collect enough wine to bring it back that they might be able to serve everybody at the wedding. So here come Jesus with his creative opportunity to step in and told the men, fill all them pots up with water. Let me show y'all how to do this in a quick manner. And when they filled it up with water, they had a little bit of a question and Jesus' mama said, whatever he tell you to do, just go and do it. All I know, the boy got some strange things that he does. Just go and do what he tell you to do. Grandmama said, and you need you arguing with God? Stop fighting with God. Don't you know your arms are too short to box with God? Just allow yourself to conform to what God is doing. Long story short, 
All them canister of waters had been turned from water into wine. And whenever they started the drink, they looked at Jesus and said, man, this is some good stuff. In fact, you done messed around and saved the best for the last. They had already drunk through the man is sure, but they had already got rid of their woes. They, they had come to the good stuff and they, they realized that when you need the miraculous, when there's nothing that you can do, Jesus knows how to step in and turn it around and make the impossible become possible. Here he is. Here he is. He, he, he's blind from birth. He's blind from birth. In fact, the disciple says, Jesus, who sinned in this man's life? Was it he or his parents? Watch what Jesus says. Neither. But he born blind that God can get the glory right at this moment. Wait, wait a minute. Hold on. He can't see. Watch this, though. Stick with me, he said. Watch me. He picks up dirt from the ground and put his own medicinal saliva in the midst of that dirt and applied it to the man's eyes. And then he told the man, now go wash in the pool of Siloam. But he blind, Jesus. How are you going to get down to the pool of Siloam? When grace is anointed upon you, it'll help you walk through darkness and help you walk when you can't see. And he will make sure you get to where you need to get. When he got down to the pool of Siloam, he washed his eyes and the Bible says those scales fell off. Watch this. This is how you know when you've been blessed of God. Everybody wanted to start questioning whether or not he was really healed or if he really could see. The man said, look, y'all can talk about if Jesus was a sinner or not. Ain't got no time for that. Y'all can talk about whether Jesus went to seminary or not. Ain't got no time for that either. One thing I do know, whereas I was blind, now I can see because God God specializes in the miraculous. Can I give you one more story and we're going to go home? Look at yourself. You were blind. You were dumb. You were dark. You were burnt. You were destroyed. And here come Jesus. Found you right where you were. Picked you up and turned you around. And planted your feet on solid ground. And now you know for a fact... God will make a way for you. God will watch out for you. God will bring you through. God will see you through every single time. You cannot quit on God, but you got to finish. You got to finish. Finish the task. Because God gives you a finishing spirit. And when the enemy comes and says, come on, let's... Let's have a conversation. Why am I going to waste my time talking to you? I know where I was. Now I know where I am. And if you're like me, I ain't going back to where I was. If anything, I'm going to stay where I am, but I ain't going back to where I was. But old folks say, I'm going to hold to his unchanging hand. I'm going to build my hope on things eternal. I'm going to hold to God's unchanging hand. Finish. Finish. See it through. And when you do that, God will give you the strength. God will give you the vision. 
God will give you the determination. When you want to th throw in that towel. Have you noticed every time you go to throw, there's a stopping to your hands? 